So the next story that we will be covering is Mechanopolis by Miguel de Unamuno. This story was published in 1913, and we are working with the translation by Marianne Womack, published in the Big Book of SF. But it was previously printed in English in another translation in the anthology Cosmos Latinos, an anthology of science fiction from Latin America and Spain. Miguel de Unamuno y Hugo was born in 1864 in Bilbao. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, Bilbao, you know? in the Basque Bilbao, country. Bilbao, yes, in Bilbao, Spain. And this was part of Basque country, indeed. He attended Complutense University of Madrid and later became a professor of Greek and classics at the University of Salamanca, though he would have preferred a philosophy position. He had many fields of interest, and he's primarily known as a philosopher, a religious thinker, playwright, poet, and novelist. He wrote many essays on political philosophy. His essay, The Tragic Sense of Life, from 1912, is considered an important work of existentialist philosophy. He's also known for the novel Abel Sanchez, The History of a Passion, which is a take on the Cain and Abel myth. He also did a retelling of Don Quixote in 1914, called Our Lord Quixote. And he left out things that he deemed to be unrelated tales in Cervantes. He seems to have been more into Don Quixote than into Cervantes, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Have you read Don Quixote? I have read bits of it, but I've never read the entirety of the work. Yeah, it, it's so. it's kind of weird. Uh, Don Quixote just like crashes in and out of the narrative and does wacky <laughs> stuff, but a lot of it is yeah. like stories from other people. But it, it seems like Unamuno was like irritated by all yeah. that other stuff. <laughs> it is very long. To get to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but Unamuno was born in Basque country and. Though he wasn't really Basque himself, in his early life he expressed a keen interest in their language and culture. But all this seemed to change by the dawn of the 20th century, as his political views altered. He delivered a conference in 1901 on how Basque literature, language, and culture was not viable. And he was an outspoken advocate of the Allied cause against Germany and its allies during World War I despite Spain's apparent neutrality. Yeah. And Unamono very much attacked both the monarchy and the big capitalist landowners in Spain at that time. In 1924, he was removed from his university positions under the dictatorship of Miguel Primo de Rivera, and he was exiled to the Canary Islands. He managed to get away from there, though, and ended up in France. So... After about six years, he was able to return to Spain, which he always tried to be close to geographically and, I suppose, philosophically. Right. And he was able to resume his position as both professor and rector at Salamanca. Now, he was a proponent of the Second Republic in the early 30s, but by 1936, he'd fallen out of political favor again for his statements against the police 
and then President Manuel Asanya. And he was wary of outside influence on Spanish culture, among other things. And so at first he did welcome Franco, believing there would be positive reforms. But he seemed soon disillusioned by what he thought of as extremism and barbarism on both sides. He declared that he was neither a fascist nor a Bolshevik, but alone. And he spent 1936 mostly under Franco-imposed house arrest, and he died that year. It's interesting because so much during that era, I think, of Spanish history is, like, blocked out, and there are things just that are coming to light now. So it was believed for a very long time that Unamuno was a suicide. But now, as of 2018, documents that have come to light since then suggest that it might have been murder. So Yeah, it wouldn't you know, be surprising at all. I mean, Franco was a yeah. brute, and there, there is no other way to put it. And the last person who visited him was somebody who falsely claimed that he was a student of his. Yeah. And significantly, even though it was mandatory at that time that there be an autopsy on any kind of death like that, Right. Supposedly, Unamuno never got one. Yep. Yep. So, it's interesting. A lot of new stuff just coming to light in the last few years. And I guess it just goes to show how much destruction there was and how much, like, suppression of the truth of things. Like, there's even accounts of things like a famous confrontation Unamuno had with a general at that time and how he made this, like, really grand speech and everything. And for years, that was believed to be the truth, but now it's like, well, yeah, right. some things have surfaced where it's like, maybe it's just literary extravagance on the part of the pers- person who wrote about it. Sure. And yeah. Maybe it didn't really happen that way. But anyway, seems like a really interesting person and an interesting time period that I personally don't know a lot about. Yeah, I, I don't either. The- it's disappointing that he was not in favor of the Basque language flourishing in literature, though. That was one of. Franco's big things is have Spanish be the language of the country, despite the fact that yeah. there's at least five or six languages widely oh, yeah. spoken in Spain. So Basque is completely unrelated to any of the Romance languages, of which, as we've seen from this episode, there's a fair amount of stuff in Catalan and Spanish written around the turn of the century. But there's also the Gallego language, and there's a couple other romance languages that are less spoken throughout Spain, but Franco essentially made it illegal for any language other than Spanish to be spoken in the country. And he really tried to crack down on the minority population that spoke other languages like Catalan or Basque. And I don't know, the way languages flourish and thrive is through literature. It's through poetry. It's through stories. And I don't know. It's disappointing that Unamuno, who was such a widely respected and major figure in the Spanish literary scene of the late 19th century, thought that way. Well, you know, I agree, but it does seem like his philosophy and political leanings altered a lot over time, depending on how he saw things develop. And well, right, exactly. Yeah. In the end, he wasn't really a fan of Franco either, for instance, and you know, like yeah, even though perhaps he did for a time believe in the the primacy of Spanish culture and he didn't want it to be diluted by outside influences like I don't really get the feeling that that was more important to him 
than his spiritual religious ideology, which was very important, yeah. it seems. You know, he's definitely very Christian and very concerned with like the welfare of human beings. And yeah, and, and you can see concern for the welfare of the soul in general come out a lot in this story that we read for tonight. Right. So let's get into it. The story begins with a direct reference to Samuel Butler's Arihuan, which is something that will come up later and we will yes, be covering. Yes, absolutely. So Unomono decides to relate the tale of his friend who visited Mechanopolis, a city of machines. So a man is wandering alone in the desert. He's lost very near death. There were companions, but they have long since departed or perished. Now he sees what he thinks might be an oasis in the distance, and despite feeling the thing might be a mere apparition or mirage, he struggles his way toward it. Behold, it is a true oasis. And he drinks water and eats fruit and sleeps, and when he is rested, he explores, and he finds an abandoned train station, and there is a deserted train chugging along the rails, there isn't even a driver, or stoker, or anybody. Curiously, our man climbs aboard the train, which moves extraordinarily swiftly, so fast that he can't even keep track of the landscape around him. When the machine, when the machine stops, he finds he's in a vast, advanced city. Everything is pristine, but also devoid of human denizens, or even animal life. So he enters a building with a sign that says hotel, and it is indeed an immaculate but deserted hotel. And he eats a meal at an automated restaurant. Just push one of a number of buttons and your dish comes up from a trough or something under the table. And there's, there are cars and trams and trains that stop for you when you wave at them. And our man goes on a tour of the empty city. He sees a vast parkland with everything laid out and categorized and classified with written explanations for everything in Spanish, but in a phonetic style of writing. Still very convenient. Yes, it's the way of the future, right? Phonetic writing. Yeah. Obviously, the way of the future. And there's also an art museum, which announces itself as part of the Paleontological Museum, indicating, of course, that a long, long period of time has passed. And in the museum, the paintings all appear to be originals. And perfect. A man wryly supposes that everything he's seen in art museums of his time, just forgeries. The plaque of the art museum explains how the machines supplanted the human race in Mechanopolis, and all this stuff, this record of them and their civilization is kept here out of paleontological historical interest. The instruments play themselves in the concert hall. And the cinematic experience includes full phonographic sound. But there are no people, and our man's soul shrinks from this. And the next morning, there's a newspaper left for him, the Mechanopolis Echo. And it includes news of all the world. On the last page is this brief item. Yesterday afternoon, by what means we are uncertain, there arrived in our city a man 
one of the few poor fellows still left around here, and we predict he will have a rough time of it. I love that. It's so good. <laughs> and he certainly does. Yeah. I'm going to read this next part because it's good. And I'm, I'm going to read this part. And it was true that my days started to become a torment to me. My loneliness began to be filled with ghosts. That is the worst thing about loneliness. How easily it becomes filled. I began to believe that all these factories, all these objects, were controlled by souls that were invisible intangible and silent i started to believe that this city was peopled with persons such as myself and that they came and went without my seeing them or hearing myself strike against them i felt that i was the victim of a terrible illness of madness the invisible world that filled the human loneliness of mechanopolis became a crucifying nightmare to me I started to give voices to the machines, to scold them, to beg things of them. I even went so far as to fall to my knees in front of a car, asking it for mercy. Almost ready to throw myself down to the ground in despair, I took up the newspaper in agitation, just to see how things were in the world of men, and found myself face to face with this article. As we predicted... The poor fellow who came, by what means we are uncertain, into the incomparable city of Mechanopolis is going mad. His spirit, filled with ancestral worries and superstitions with regard to the invisible world, is unable to cope with the spectacle of progress. We pity him. I could not resist the compassion of the mysterious, invincible creatures whether angels or demons, whom I believed to inhabit Mechanopolis. But then I was stricken by a terrible idea, the idea that the machines themselves had souls, mechanical souls, and that it was the machines themselves who felt pity for me. This idea made me tremble. I thought that now I was face to face with the race that dominated the dehumanized Earth. So that is amazing. And our man throws himself in front of a train and is apparently hit. But then he awakens back in the oasis. He soon meets a Bedouin, Arab, I suppose. And he is looked after and they pray together and look up at the stars. Finally, human companionship. From this day forward, though, our man retires to seclusion, avoiding all progress, machines, and even culture itself. And that's the story. Very short. Extremely short. Very interesting. Yeah. I think we will come to this later, but just a few years earlier, there was a story published called The Machine Stops in English yeah. by E.M. Forster. And, yes. And it describes a society that's almost completely mechanized, but there are still humans in that society. The interesting thing about this one is there are none, and it reminds me, I guess, of stuff like... There will come soft rains by Ray Bradbury right. in terms of like the machines are just running themselves. Yeah, yeah. And it's implied that they have souls, but everything is just sort of seems to run by itself. We don't really know what it's running for. Like, what is all this stuff for? I can't really answer that question. No, they don't go into it at all. The city is just presented as being there. The narrator shows up. 
and realizes that humans need other humans. Humans can't exist in a void where there's no social contact. And it's not like there's any humanoid automaton. There's no, no. Like, Mr. Data to come greet him. It almost seems to me like the city runs itself and the brains of the city yeah. are these invisible things that operate, like computers, we would say, probably. Yeah. And it's even described as perhaps having a soul that has pity for this wandering man in its yeah. vastness. It is strangely absent of any kind of human form in strange ways in that it prints out a newspaper, but who's going to be reading it? <laughs> right. Like, who would read it except for him? Yeah. Right? Like, did they, they, they never printed a newspaper till he showed up, presumably. Because right. why would they need to? Or maybe they just do it because that's what the machine is programmed to do. It just prints the newspaper. That's very wasteful. <laughs> under normal circumstances. I, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a really interesting one. This, this is really definitely predates a lot of the fear of the machines taking over and stuff. Yeah. But the machines in this story do not seem malevolent. They don't seem... No. ...that bear any malice to anyone or anything. No, it's it's more commentary on the human soul, I think, than yeah. this idea that robots can be superior to humans. It does directly reference Erewhon at the beginning, which mm -hmm. we will be covering as well as a bunch of other machine-type stories later. Yeah. But I haven't read that one, and apparently it goes into a lot of the same kind of things of a proto-mechanical-type yeah. intelligence. I'm looking forward to getting yeah. to that. But do you wonder what was in the newspaper? And Unamuno's like, oh, here's the newspaper, and on the last yeah. page, <laughs> and he's like, he talks about news of the world. Like, yeah. he doesn't tell us what that means. Like, is everything else right. like Mykonopolis? Probably not. No. No, I mean, do they have reporters? Like, how do they get the news? Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's It doesn't strange. seem like anybody has found this place. If it's a train stop in the middle of the desert that is operated by nobody. <laughs> it's all just a dream, probably. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't mean to denigrate this. Like, I I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed especially that part, that, that whole um, section that I read out there. Because it's just so... The, the feeling of it is really powerful. Yeah. I just, it, I do feel it's a little bit like, I don't quite understand why he was so, I don't know, like maybe the fact that the machines maybe had souls at the end should have been, I, I think nowadays, over a hundred years on, we would consider the possibility that that might be a positive development. Right. Like, okay, but it's not just this machine that's running on untended by human beings like running on pointlessly and ceaselessly, it actually has enough intelligence and poise to say, here's a man wandering around. What's going to become of him? Right? That could be a positive thing. But it's just not portrayed that way in the story. No. Although Unamono, I think, was very interested in science, I guess he was maybe a little bit, like, not impressed with the whole idea of automation, perhaps, and the way things were going in certain certain sectors i don't know the whole the instruments are playing themselves in the hall of concerts and it's all <laughs> it's all become so automated and so rote and so right. it takes all the feeling out of it yeah but there's this this to me there is this hint at the end that there's more to it than that but instead of like making him respect it a little more it seems to actually make him more afraid yeah 
Almost that uncanny valley type thing. I guess so, yeah. That was very strange to me, and that perhaps is something that maybe a lot of the 21st century audience, especially a science fiction audience, would see differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know. I liked it. I liked it. It had an atmosphere to it. As an actual science fiction story, perhaps it left more questions than answers, which is fine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's also very, very short. Yeah, it is very short. And it is all perhaps a dream. So I think, as you say, it's more about the human soul. Yeah. And to that extent, it works. And I think that the loneliness and the realization that human companionship as a whole is, is desirable and beneficial comes across very well. Yeah, definitely. So that is Miguel de Unomuno. And we are coming to the end of our journey tonight. But we still have one story. We have been moving sort of roundabout forward in time. That last story was from 1913. Now, let's go to 1925 and Weird Tales magazine. And a story by somebody who was very popular for his very few stories in that magazine and in general. Nixon Dialhis. And I hope I pronounced that right, but I really have no idea. And I'm not sure that anyone really did. He was a bit of a weird tale himself. 